Amen. Thank the Lord he does. Uh, he comes to us. And I trust he'll come to you tonight and make the Word of God alive. And we're going to go to James chapter number 2. James, isn't that a great name, James? Yes, okay. James chapter, how many are named James? Somewhere in your name first or okay. I've got a few James out here. That's uh, usually anybody by the name of James is a baby boomer. I don't know what it is. The name has fallen on hard times. Okay, but anyway, I travel in Christian schools. I never find Jameses anymore. Okay, but anyway, maybe the name will come back into vogue. I don't know. Uh, but anyway... Uh, uh, my grandson, uh, they decided to take my name and flip it. So he's Parker James. Okay, so I was James Parker. So I'm kind of proud of that little guy. And maybe one day you'll get to meet him. The cutest kid I've ever seen. Unbelievable. And the smartest kid I've ever seen too. It's just amazing uh, what happens here. But anyway, and... Uh, uh, that's uh, been a lot of fun. Of course, I, I've, been a, I've been a girl dad, okay? I had three girls, didn't have any boys. I think I said somewhere along the line, didn't mess it up with any boys, so we just got girls. And so I'm kind of learning this, this boy thing. I don't know. This is going to be a new experience for me. I uh, love raising girls. They're real easy. All you got to do is spoil them rotten. That's it. Okay, you got it. That's not hard to do when you're a dad. And uh, some of you dads out here know when you get that little girl boy, I tell you what. Uh, your wife has to put a lock on your wallet and, get, and take the key, or you're going to... Uh, going to be in huge trouble. But anyway, uh, all that aside, I don't know where I was going with that. But anyway, oh yeah, back to James. James, yeah, we're there. Good to see you here. And uh, it's wonderful to see the weather coming and warming up here a little bit. And uh, I uh, certainly looking forward to the good weather at the end of the week, but really encouraged with your attendance tonight. Monday night always tells you a lot about a revival meeting, and I just want to thank you for coming. I know many of you had to make an effort to get here. It wasn't easy to do that. And I really do as a preacher appreciate it. But uh, really, it's not for me. It's for the Lord and trusting that he'll use his word. Now, if I had anything to describe this week by, it's the little phrase, faith without works is dead. Now, most of you know, when I said James chapter number two, that's where the phrase is found. And many times I believe it is misunderstood and mispreached. In fact, most people today, because of a resurgence of a certain system of theology, would interpret James chapter two this way. This is basically saving faith without works is dead. In other words, if you're saved, it's going to result in obedience. And so the inference would be, if your salvation does not result in obedience, well, the inference is, you've never been saved. And I had a young man travel on my team, and I was teaching him a little bit about assurance of salvation. And uh, he was having one of those light bulb moments. He said, yeah. He said, man, there's a kid at our Bible college. He'd been saved five times. I think they took that song, Save, 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 literally. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, let's get this thing down. Let's keep getting saved. You know, you only need to get saved once. Did you know that? Many times people that uh, get preached that, you know, they're thinking, I'm not living the Christian life, so I must not get saved. So let me get saved again. Now, this is going to shock you. But you know what happens if you're saved and you get saved again? You know what happens? Nothing. Because <laughs> you're already saved. And many times, you know what happens, uh, people think salvation is, okay, i got to get saved again. And the point is simply this, friends. What we're talking about is sanctification. See, when you get saved, there's a change of center, and it's a radical change of center. And all you men in Sunday school, we talked about that. But there is a maturing process. There's a growth process. And part of that is understanding what the Word of God says, taking steps of faith, etc. And that's why I'm preaching this message. I believe James chapter 2 is not saying saving faith without works is dead. What it's saying is sanctifying works without, uh, uh, sanctifying faith, excuse me, without works is dead. 
In other words, as I mentioned the other night, the book of James is written to the brethren. I think brethren is mentioned nine times in five chapters. He's trying to tell us who he's preaching to. Who's he preaching to? And the answer is, save people. And so he's really challenging us about our faith. He's not trying to get you to question your salvation. Now, don't get me wrong. Obviously, if somebody claims to be saved and shows, shows no, uh, any kind of Christianity in their life, we'd all kind of wonder. In fact, that actually is addressed here from the human standpoint. But from God's standpoint, friends, I believe what he's trying to help us with here is as a Christian, as you begin to live a life of faith, there's something that is a very vital part of a life of faith. And that is, this is going to shock you, obedience or works, as the passage uses it. So what is the place of works in theology? Now, I'm going to get to the passage in a moment, but I do want to get this introduction out there because it's very important. And again, maybe you're not into some of the theological battles of the day, and there are certain passages of Scripture, how you interpret them actually determine uh, many other parts of the Bible. In other words, it's, it's kind of like dominoes. You've, you've seen dominoes, haven't you? You know, you keep putting those up, and you've seen somebody hit one domino, and guess what happens? Who knows how many? Hundreds, sometimes thousands of dominoes drop because one. And many times in theology, if you drop a certain passage, interpret some way, dominoes begin to drop. And so it's very important that we come to particularly key passage in James chapter 2 is one of them. You come out the right way so the dominoes drop the right way. And so, um, uh, so what I was to do is, uh, in James chapter 2, it's talking about this faith without works, but I believe, again, it's talking about faith in the Christian life. And uh, the assurance issue and how that all relates to salvation is not my purpose tonight. It's really my purpose tonight to try to go to this passage. So let's go and look at a couple things here in James chapter number 2. And let's begin there, if we could please, in verse number 20. Now, there's a whole part of the passage I can't deal with tonight because it would take too long. And I want to just make sure we focus on the, the point here tonight. But look at verse number 20. It says, But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead. By the way, I should do this just because I want to help you out here. If you go back to verse number 14, notice what it says. What does it profit? What are the next two words? My brethren. So who's he talking to? Saved or lost? Save people. He even gives an illustration in verse number 15. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food. Okay. He's giving illustration about saved or lost. Save people. Okay, so the whole thing is about Christians. It's talking about the church here, etc. This is the early, obviously, in the early church. So go, you, see, you got there, verse number 20. Now go down, if you would please, to verse number 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now, this is an interesting analogy. So he's using the picture of a body and its spirit. Now, if you follow the analogy, the body is faith and the spirit is works. Now, I don't know if you've ever been around a dead body, and probably most of us have because we've attended a funeral. But you know, when you go by, uh, uh, the Bible is basically saying, you, you go by a dead body and there's not much you can do. Just sit there. Now, the Bible's saying that's what happens when people say, I got faith, but they have no obedience. It's just like a body who does not have a spirit. The Bible says it's dead. So we're going to, if we can here, just take a moment to walk through a passage of Scripture that kind of seems troublesome at first, okay? But once we look at it, it's not. And then we're going to spend some time on application. And I hope when we do that, your heart will be stirred. 
Because I'm going to ask you a second question. So we'll kind of leave that alone where we are. I'll come back to it in a moment. Got a second question here. This is all introduction, isn't it? You, some of you get worried looking at the clock. Okay. Okay, so here it is. Here's the second question. And the second question is this. What if I told you tonight that there was a divine means for your faith to come to, to maturity? Would you be interested? This passage of Scripture is going to tell us how your faith can be perfected or matured. And it's a very simple solution. So I want to get you that as well, and hopefully that'll be an encouragement to you. But we're going to dive into a story here that James chapter 2 refers to, and that's, of course, Abraham offering his son Isaac on the altar. So let's walk through the passage, and we're going to see a couple of things here and then make some applications. So let's begin in verse number 21. It says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works, when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar. Now, does that jar you a little bit theologically? This was so jarring to Martin Luther, he began to question the inspiration of the book of James. That was his solution. Well, James must not be a part of the canon. That is not the right solution. But you can see why he was jarred with that, because obviously the Reformation was obviously uh, Martin Luther was one of the early ones in the Reformation, and it was all about justification by faith. So he struggled with this passage of Scripture. But there is an answer. Here's what I want you to do. Look at verse number 22, and I want you to see something. Look what it says. The first two words, go ahead and tell me. The first two words are, go ahead and say it together. The first two words are? Wow. Okay, go to verse number 24, and I want you to say the same thing. The first two words. The first two words of verse 24 are? Okay, so who's seeing? And the answer is human beings. So put a finger in James chapter 2 and go to Romans chapter number 3. Boy, you guys are hanging with me. I'm going to ask you, I know this is going to be very, very unusual, but I'm going to ask you to do something that most of the time uh, congregations have a hard time doing, and that is thinking. Okay, so I'm just going to ask you to do that here tonight. You're doing a great job thus far. So go to look for verse number 20 of Romans chapter 3. Keep a finger in James 2 because we're coming right back. Look what it says. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall be no flesh justified in, next two words. Oh. So I want you to understand something, friends. In the sight of God, the only way you'll ever be justified is by faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. So when it's talking about being justified here, it's talking about which perspective. In God's perspective, the only way you and I will ever be justified is by believing. But in man's perspective, the only way you'll ever be justified in somebody else's sight is by obedience. They can't see your heart. Let me give you this illustration. Uh, maybe you've heard the story, but there's a missionary years ago, I think it was Papua New Guinea or Irian Jaya, one of those uh, countries over there, and he had come there and he said, I had an anger problem. So he got over there and uh, uh, he really struggled to be a good missionary. And he reached the point, he said, you know, I'd be a real good missionary if it wasn't for the natives. It's like many times the youth pastors, man, I'd be a great youth pastor if it wasn't for those young people. Okay, you get the idea. Be like a pastor saying, man, I'd be a great pastor if it wasn't for my congregation. Okay, you get the idea. Okay, people do mess things up, have a tendency to do that, don't they? Okay, so anyway, he was struggling. He had an anger problem, and these natives set him off because they had cultural differences. One was they would, like, just thieves. 
And they'd steal and they'd steal things out of his garden and he'd hire them to plant trees. And in their culture, if you planted the tree, you owned it. Doesn't matter where it was. So he just had all kinds of problems, was constantly blowing up at them. And, and, uh, and so he went away on fur furlough and, and kind of as a, you know, kind of like a failure. And some of you have heard this story, went on furlough and man, God got a hold of his heart and, and he realized he had an anger problem and he decided to do something. He decided to give everything he had to the Lord. So that way, if the natives stole, they weren't stealing from him, they were stealing from the Lord. That was the solution. So he came back and the natives began to notice that he didn't get angry anymore. And they were kind of amazed at the transformation. And he had peace and he had rest. And so one day the, 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 some of the people, the men, gathered together outside of his home. And, and they, 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 they got to ask the missionary to come. And, and he said whenever they would really be thinking, they would rub their noses. That'd be nice if, if that were the way in America. Because then all the teachers would know if their kids were really, you know, really, were really learning. They'd be rubbing their noses. Okay. And so uh, they were all out there rubbing their noses. And they said, missionary, we've got a question for you. And they said, uh, Mr. Missionary, uh, have you become a Christian? <laughs> and the missionary said, well, what do you mean? Well, they said, before you left, you told us about becoming a Christian, and we always wondered if we'd ever see one. Have you become a Christian? And do you know what he said? He said, yes, I have. Can I say this? On his first term, he was justified on the side of God, but he was not justified in the side of the natives. His second term, he was justified in the sight of God. And because of his dependence on Jesus and seeing the obedience of Christ through him, he became justified in the sight of the natives. See, I believe that's what James chapter 2 is telling us. It's helping us understand something uh, because he's talking about thou seest. Now, that's the perspective, the overall perspective. Now let's see one other important truth here. Then we'll make the application. So uh, verse number 21 again. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? It's like it's a rhetorical question. Seest thou, this is a key phrase, how faith wrought with his works and by works was faith made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Okay, you say, what's going on here? Okay, now notice what it says here in verse number 22. It seest thou, very kind of a little complicated, but if you plug in for a moment, seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. The idea is simply this, that faith, that works was helping faith, or faith was helping works, and by means of works, faith was made perfect. You say, preacher, you're confusing me. Well, let's stop for a moment, and I want you to see something uh, about the issue of works. Okay, now let's talk first of all about means and result. Now, do you know what a means is? Okay, for, for by grace are you saved through faith. Now, what is the means in that verse? And there's actually two means. The first is grace. You know what grace is? Divine means. You and I could not get saved if it was not for grace. The divine means is God's grace. Can I say this? The human means, if we could put it that way, is faith. It's our responsibility to trust God. It's, we're not doing anything. We're depending on Jesus to do everything we can't do. 
It's a total dependence on Him. Okay, that we might call the human means or human responsibility, however you want to package it. And again, I want to be careful here, but theologically, but let's just, uh, let's just see what means, understand means. Now, most of us understand means, okay? Uh, uh, as I've traveled over the, over the, um, uh, over the time, uh, last few decades, from time to time, I've had a chance to go different attractions. And so let's imagine you go down to Florida and you're going to go to Disney World. Okay, now how are you going to get into Disney World? There has to be means. Now there's actually a couple of means. Okay, if you come in the main parking lot, you've got to go through the ticket center and either get on the monorail or on the boat. How many are tracking with me? How many have ever been to Magic Kingdom? Okay, you see the mouse. Okay, but anyway, uh, you mortgage the house to get there. I understand that. Okay, but anyway, uh, so uh, you've got to get on one of those and that's the means to get you to the gate. But once you get to the gate, you still have another means. You know what that is? Money. <laughs> and you've got to pay a lot of money. <laughs> To get through that gate. You understanding what means is? See, one means is your responsibility. That's paying the bill. That's, that's you. The other one is you're depending on some, some other, you know, uh, beyond you, a power that's not your own to get you there, whether it's the boat or the monorail. That's not a perfect analogy, but help you understand what means is. But there's another issue, and that is result. So what is the means of salvation? And the answer is, is it faith or works? And the answer is? It's faith. You get saved by faith. Okay, what's the means of sanctification? Faith or works? And the answer is, it's faith. You grow spiritually by faith. What's the means of assurance of salvation? Faith or works? And the answer is, it's faith. We get assured by faith. What's the means of revival? Is it faith or works? And the answer is, it's faith. I used to say uh, pretty dogmatically that the only means in the Bible is faith. And then I had to change it because of James chapter number two. Say, what do you mean? Well, may I say this, that obviously we get saved by faith, we get sanctified by faith, we get assurance of salvation by faith, we have revival by faith, the Christian life is a walk of faith, it's all of faith, and obviously, don't miss this, faith results in works. See, it results in that. That's the result, it's not the means. But there's one area that works becomes the means. You say, what's that? We'll go back to the text. See if you can have the light bulb moment. Back to 22 again. Seest thou how faith wrought with his works? And here it is. By works. That's means. What happens? Was faith made perfect. Now don't miss this. The means for perfected or mature faith is obedience. In other words, your faith will be stymied and will never grow without obedience. It's a means to growing faith. You cannot have vibrant faith. You cannot have a faith that it's alive. You cannot have a faith that's powerful without obedience. See, so it's kind of like this. Faith produces works and works become a means for more faith. Isn't that interesting? So we could put it this way. Faith brings works, which are a means for more faith, which are bring works, which are a means for more faith. And it's kind of like this. You're circling upward. Amen. Years ago, I was 16 years old. And that was years ago. I was 16. How many felt like 
since your teenage years to now, like life has gone faster than you thought it was. Anybody like with me on this thing? Like I was talking, who were we talking to? I can't even remember who I was talking to. Uh, well, I think it was Brother Cherry. And we were talking about Saturday morning cartoons. They don't even have those anymore. Like these poor, no wonder what's wrong with Generation Z. They didn't have Saturday morning cartoons. And uh, uh, you, know, you know how kids are, they, while they're eating, they stare, stare at their cell phones. We stared at cereal boxes. How many know what I'm talking about? Yeah. How many bought the cereal based on what was the prize that was in the box? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, we'd go through, we'd check out all the prizes. We didn't care what the cereal was. Man, these kids are missing out, aren't they? Man, unbelievable. Okay, where was I going with that? I'm not even sure. Okay, yeah, but anyway, yeah. So I was 16 years old. I was in Colorado Springs, Colorado on a vacation and my dad had a deacon uh, in his church in Colorado who um, was young at the time, completely got right with God. And he, was, he was carnal and worldly, and my dad came to that church and started preaching through 1 Corinthians. My dad had one strategy when he took, my dad never took a good church. He took churches that were a disaster. And he had a, he had a methodology, and his methodology was this. Preach um, a series on 1 Corinthians, and every problem in the church would be smoked out. <laughs> And so uh, this uh, young man at the time, uh, he, um, he, said, he told me later, he was an old man, he said, Preacher, he said, I got so mad at your dad. He said, I made a decision. I am either going to join the group that's going to try to run the preacher out, he said, or I had to get right with God. He said, I decided to get right with God. <laughs> Became one of my dad's closest friends in the ministry. Of course, he wasn't in the ministry, but closest friends as a result of ministry. And uh, he became a wealthy oil man. I think first for Exxon, and he just made all kinds of money. But anyway, and so his kids, he was pretty rich kids, and, and his kids were taking glider lessons. And I remember we were kind of interacting with him at the airport, and his 15-year-old son looked at me and said, I just got my glider pilot license. You want to go up with me? I'm 16, I'm young, and I'm dumb. And you know what I said? Yes. So I get it. He was, he was the in the pilot seat. I'm right behind him. Anybody ever been up in a glider? Anybody at all? Okay. It's kind of like a balsa wood airplane. Okay. And so, and uh, they had a tow plane and, and we got it on up. And of course you have Pikes Peak there, beautiful there in Colorado. And usually, you know, and, and so we're, we kind of towing up there. And at this time I'm too worried we're on a tow plane and he's explaining, he says, what's going to happen? He said, the tow plane is going to detach it. It will go this way. We will go this way. He said, and what happens is, is we get up here and, and he said, it'll start to glide down. And he said, we'll look for a thermal. He said, all over this, there's warm air like this, going like this, like an elevator up. And he said, what will happen is we'll hit one of those elevators. And he said, you can see that plane over there. It's circling like this. And it's in that thermal. It'll go up and then it'll fly out and it'll come down and it will hit a thermal and we fly up and we come down. He said, we can stay up here all day. That was not beginning to sound real good to me. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> so sure enough, the plane detaches and phew, this way. And all of a sudden it hit me. I am thousands of feet above the ground in a paper airplane with a rookie pilot <laughs> <laughs> who wanted to show off. He said, you ever heard of negative G's? I don't think so. So all of a sudden, I felt like I was 500 pounds. You ever had that happen? Just, I mean, he just banked that thing. And he says, you ever heard of positive G's? I don't think so. Pretty soon, the dust and the airplane's hanging around right about my face, you know, where you feel like you're just weightless. 
and he's doing all that kind of stuff and I'm not feeling real good. You know what I'm talking about? And all of a sudden we hit that warm air and that, like an elevator shaft right up like that. He said, oh, that's a thermal. And make a long story short, I, I, would, I was not feeling well. And I finally had to say to him, we got to get down. We just got to get down. He was so disappointed because he wanted to get back in that thermal and go up and pop out and come down and go up. And there was no way I wanted to do that. I wasn't going to make it. Now, friends, can I say this carefully? Do you know what we're discussing here tonight? God's thermal. See, when you trust God, guess what? You really are believing God. You have living faith. It results in obedience. When it results in obedience, that obedience becomes a means for growing or mature faith, which results in obedience. As that has obedience, guess what happens? That obedience is a means for maturing faith, growing faith, which then, of course, results in obedience. Are you catching it? And you're going up like this. And it's a wonderful thermal. There's a lot of thermals in the Word of God, but that's one of them that helps us understand that the, the Christian life is a life of faith that results in obedience. Now, there's three things that this passage of Scripture tells us happens when we believe God enough to obey Him. And in that obedience, as we take that step of obedience, we, we find our faith grows. Now, I'm going to give you some illustrations First, before we get to these three things, but uh, let's put it this way. Let's say, if I were to ask you, and I'm not going to do it because I don't want you to think I'm setting you up, but if I were to ask you tonight, how many of you believe the Bible teaches us that God's people ought to give and the tithe would be the bare minimum since that was the Old Testament and et cetera? I'm not going to have you raise your hand, but if I, if I basically said, how many of you believe in the tithe of the local church? Probably most of you would raise your hand. But can I say this carefully? That if you believe in tithing and you don't tithe, guess what? Your faith is dead. You know, there are certain things in the Bible, I call them faith triggers. There are certain things in the Bible that if you obey God, something happens to this supernaturally, you begin to grow. Your faith begins to mature and nurture and it groweth exceedingly, there it says in the Thessalonian epistles. So, so uh, what one of the faith triggers is, no doubt about it, giving. There's a lot of faith triggers, and it's interesting to me, as I look across the evangelical landscape, certain parts of evangelicalism will emphasize certain faith triggers, but some they don't. And you know what that means? Without each one of these faith triggers, you'll never get, be able to get to Christian maturity without all of them. Now, let me just give you a few. Giving. How about another one? Outreach. How many believe in the Great Commission? Don't raise your hands, but I'm just giving the rhetorical question. I would assume most of you would raise your hand. I believe. Can I say this carefully? If we believe in the Great Commission, but we never open our mouth or we never hand out gospel tracts, you guess what? We really don't believe it. Our faith is dead. There is something about it, may I say this carefully, there is something about it in any one of our lives when we begin to make active uh, uh, obedience to the Lord and say, okay, Lord, I'm volunteering. You give me an opportunity and I'll open my mouth and give the gospel. There's something about those, those steps of faith that I don't know how to explain it. They're the result of faith and they nurture and encourage your faith. I remember I came back from my freshman year at Bob Jones University and I remember that I was very... Uh, I hadn't had a lot of, a, of you know, a success or what, I don't know that's the best word, uh, in my uh, outreach efforts and we were required to do it, but I hadn't seen a whole lot. But God had done a work in my heart and I realized, you know, if I'm going to go in the ministry and this is going to be a part of my life, I need to see, I need to see God intervene when it comes to giving the gospel. 
And I didn't realize this till later, but Dr. Ron Comfort uh, said somewhere, he made a statement, and I said, boy, that is really true. He said, I've never known an evangelist to be used of God who did not have a, a concentrated time in his life when he concentrated on personal soul winning. And so I didn't know that at the time, but that summer I came home after my freshman year and I made a decision. I am going to go on teen outreach or teen soul winning every night of the week that I'm not in church. So on Monday night we went out talking to teenagers. Tuesday night went out. Thursday night went out. Friday night, Saturday night went out. Five nights, four if there was a youth activity. But four or five nights every week out on the streets talking to teenagers, giving them the gospel. That was probably what I would call a life-changing summer. In fact, may I tell you this, I learned to preach the gospel given, uh, on the streets of Donald's Grove, Darien, Westmont, uh, giving the gospel to teenagers. That's where I learned to preach the gospel. And the bigger the crowd and the rougher the crowd and the more antagonistic the crowd, the more I loved it. I just thrived on it. I love the rough crowds. And I'll be honest with you, that is not my personality. But God was preparing me to preach the gospel for these decades now. And I remember the very first couple of guys, I was out on the streets, very first day, very first time home from college, went out, just walked a few blocks. That was the back in the day when teenagers weren't on their phones because they didn't have the kind of phones we have today. They were just out in the neighborhood. There were kids everywhere. Now I remember stopping a couple of guys. One's name was Lenny Orlando. Still remember his name. The other guy's name was Tony Parajas. They were walking down the street, began to give them the gospel, engaged them in a gospel conversation. They actually were interested, was able to go through the whole gospel. And although they did not get saved, God did something that day. You say, preacher, what did he do? I, did, I wouldn't have seen it this way, but you know what he did? He began to immature and encourage my faith. And then it was more soul winning encounters. And the, and the whole summer, I'll be honest with you, I may not have been very effective. And I sometimes say, I'm not sure I did those kids a whole lot of good, but I'm sure the gospel did. But I will tell you, they did me a whole lot of good. God did begin to do something in my heart and began to encourage my faith as I began to take those steps of obedience. See, outreach is one of those necessary areas in every Christian life. Can, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you think a Christian can be a mature Christian and never give the gospel? And the answer is impossible. Every Christian to grow has to take steps of faith in giving the gospel, whether it's starting with gospel tracts, speaking a word of witness. Recently, God um, began to work in my heart. Sometimes, friends, I'm, not, I'm all for giving out tracts, but sometimes for some of us, that's a cop-out. You know what I would encourage you to do is learn how to give the gospel in 30 seconds. Sometimes, sometimes I haven't had tracks and the Holy Spirit has said, you need to talk to that person. And I'll just, I was sitting on the plane with a guy and I said, uh, let me, we went over some things and I said, John chapter 3, I said it over and over again. I said, will you get a chance? Will you read John chapter 3 in the New Testament? And that's what I would call a verbal track. You can give out verbal tracks. Point them to the Word of God. That would be a good thing. The point simply is this, friends. When God begins to stir your heart, and really, if you're here and He's never stirred your heart, I'm telling you, yeah, you just uh, get to somebody who has a heart for souls and they can help you understand the importance and how it is. Just simply, they'll take those steps to whether it's gospel track or speaking a word of witness. But when you take those steps, guess what God does? He stirs your faith. He encourages your faith. So giving, uh, outreach. How about this one? Personal holiness. Now, I'll tell you, this one's that fallen on hard times. 
There are so many people in their Christian life, I'm thinking generations ago, one of the very first things that encouraged and meshed their, uh, just began to, to their faith to move forward was taking, just making decisions about areas of worldliness and personal separation. Remember several years ago, I, this is several years ago, I came across a young man and I could tell he was moving to the left. And that church had been very conservative and uh, they had been very conservative on the issues of ladies' dress. And he was just recklessly going a different direction. And I remember telling him, you know, you need to be careful because some of these ladies, when they made a decision about ladies' dress, that was a faith decision that changed their life. We have a lady in our church. She came in, she got saved, but she had so much feminism in her. She just chafed at just the biblical understanding of what a woman is. She just chafed at her role as a wife and anything biblical, she chafed at it. And I will tell you, there was one day when God got a whole heart and broke through in her heart and she made a decision that was manifested in the way she dressed. And you know what happened? Her life was changed. Everything else came in. And somebody, you know, look, well, that's the external. But the external was only an evidence of what God had done in her heart. And she took a step of faith and said, my dress is going to be different than it's been. And I'm going to identify with Bible truth and, and distinction and these and modesty and these kind of things that I hadn't before. And she took that step of faith and she began to grow. Do you see that? See, many times people, God convicts them of an area of worldliness in their life and they realize, man, I need to change. They make a decision of faith and their faith begins to grow and mature. Amen. Now, one of the problems with broader evangelicalism is they do not have that faith trigger. See, all of us in this room would admit, if you never attempt to give people the gospel and, and never are part of, of God, the Great Commission, you cannot be a mature believer. I would submit to you, if you have never really grappled with the issues of worldliness and personal separation and have never made application in your life, you cannot be a mature Christian. Because to be countercultural, you know what it takes? Faith. It takes faith to say, I'm never going to watch that again. I remember when I was... My teen years, my, I've said this uh, before, but my parents were great parents, but things were happening in the 70s were different than the 60s. If you're back in those days, how many were alive in the 60s and 70s? Can I see your hands? Okay, all my baby boomer friends are raising their hands. Okay, yeah, the 60s and 70s, even on television, were different. In the 60s, there was no cursing. In the 70s, cursing began to introduce in your 7 o'clock and 8 o'clock television program. And, um, of course, I remember the 60s, and, and I remember growing up and coming home from school and turning on, you know, Andy Griffith show and all that kind of stuff, and, and then we'd come home and watch things. Of course, when you're in Chicago, you'd come home. First thing you do in the spring was turn on the Cubs game. Okay, yeah, it'd be about the fifth inning. Had day baseball back in those days. But, but anyway, uh, so 60s moved into 70s. My mom and dad really didn't keep up with things, and television was fast changing. Hollywood was changing. And uh, unfortunately, uh, my parents meant well, but they allowed me to watch too much television. And I will be honest with you, I became a teenage TV addict. Some of you can identify with this. Uh, Monday night, Tuesday night, well, Wednesday night was church, but Thursday night, Friday. So I'll just tell you my lineup, okay? So some of you are going to... Monday night was Gunsmoke. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Gunsmoke. I love Gunsmoke. Tuesday night was um, uh, the... Uh, I think it was... Um, oh, Hawaii 5 -0. Yeah, Tuesday night was Hawaii 5 -0. Uh Wednesday night 
was about the first 20 minutes of the bionic woman. Then I had to run the church. Always wondered what happened. You know, I was a huge fan there of the bionic crew there. And then and Thursday, it was SWAT and the streets of San Francisco. Oh, yeah. Okay. And then Friday night, it was the $6 million man. Yeah. Yeah. We can rebuild him. We have the technology. Okay. There it is. And some of you right now, the theme song is playing in your brain. Okay. We can make him faster, stronger. Okay. I thought Steve Austin was the man. Okay. But anyway, so that was it back in the day. And, and boy, I'm telling you, I, I was there each one of those things. I watched, sometimes I'd come home, watch some TV, and then eat dinner and then man seven o'clock of course for you it's eight 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 you understand seven central eight eastern but anyway for me it was seven central okay how many are vibing with me now okay here it is the boomer's still with me okay yeah but anyway I remember as a teenager things would happen on some of those television programs that today would concern we thought oh that's no big deal but I remember the spirit of God convicting me as a Christian you ought to be watching that I remember sometimes the heroes, I remember one was not even so veiled. It was all about adultery. It was about an affair. I think it was $6 million man. He has having an affair. And I remember the Spirit of God smote me and convicted me. And I remember some of the other ones, there'd be cursing and there'd be this and there'd be the violence. And of course, it's kindergarten compared to today, but it was still wrong. And I remember the Spirit of God on some of those television programs. I remember the Spirit of God dealing with me. And I remember as a 16-year-old, 17-year-old boy, right before going off to college, I remember saying to myself, God, I'll never watch it again. Now, for me, that was like death. Oh, I'm never going to watch it again. I love that TV program. And I, and I was like dying, dying to something I love. But I knew it had elements in it that were not helping me spiritually. Now, I want to ask you a question. What do you think happened in my Christian life when I made decisions to not watch stuff that the Holy Spirit was telling me not to watch? And the answer is, my faith grew. Now, here's what I'm afraid about Gen Zers and Millennials. I hear very little of that dynamic occurring in their life. Where they are making decisions, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not watching that anymore. I'm not going there anymore. I was certainly thrilled with my son-in-law. Of course, he's my son-in-law, so I'm a little prejudiced. But as we were preaching in Nairobi last week, and he was talking about having victory over the issue of pornography, he said to those men, and of course, almost all of those guys are struggling. And he said to those guys, everything has to be on the table. He said, your application may be different, but everything's on the table. For some of you, you may not be able to have a smartphone. He said, if you're sitting here chafing, and there's certain things you're not going to put on the table. You are not really ready for victory. Because if you want victory, it has to come to a point. Everything is on the table. For some of you, YouTube's got to go. For some of you, and he named stuff I wouldn't even know about, that's got to go. That's got to go. That's your access point. Everything has to be on the table if you want victory. And I'm going to tell you something, friends. If you're defeated and you want victory, you will never have victory until everything's on the table. Everything. And here's the point. In the culture in which we live, if there are not times where God brings you to separation from the world and to love not the world and to not be conformed to the world and take steps of faith to say, I'm not doing that anymore, I'm not going there anymore, I'm not watching that anymore, or I'm going to start doing this, I'm going to stop doing this, if those occur and do not occur in your life, then you will never reach the point of full maturity. See, there has to be faith steps that result in obedience, and that obedience propels your faith forward. 
See, that's what it's telling us here. Now, uh, I, I believe another faith trigger is the issue of prayer. I don't know that, let me ask you a question. Do you think a Christian could become a mature believer and not have a significant prayer life? And the answer is, it's impossible. Any Christian who ever reaches maturity will take faith, faith steps in giving. They'll take faith steps in outreach, giving the gospel. They'll take faith steps in being separated from the world. And they will take faith steps in beginning to nurture a prayer life or a prayer journey. And as they do, God begins to work in their life. It's like this. You can get a hold of faith and you can say, oh, this is so exciting. You know, faith is the key. I remember in, in college when God just illumined my heart, I said, I got it. The key to the Christian life is faith. And that is absolutely true. But if you really get a hold of what biblical faith is, it doesn't stop there. Faith produces works which become a means for greater faith. Which produce works which become a means for greater faith. Which produce works which become a means for greater faith. Are you getting it? And when you and I talk about faith and we get excited about faith, but it does not result in obedience, the faith was dead. Because it is obedience that is the lifeblood or the spirit that, that animates faith. That's what it's telling us. Now, faith triggers, we could talk about a few more, but I've given you what I would consider probably the significant faith triggers. But I want you to think about this. Because I've certainly seen this. I grew up in a world where a lot of churches were really good on separation. Some of them were kind of more on ecclesiastical separation. You say, preacher, that. What's that? It's being separated from compromising organizations. Ecclesiastical, kind of lost that, but ecclesiastical separation. I was in, in kind of at this, Bob Jones at the time, that was like a big deal. And, uh, but I've been in places that were really big on separation, but they didn't do a lot of soul winning. Do you think they ever could become fully mature? And the answer is no. See, all the faith triggers have to be there. It's like over in evangelicalism, like I mentioned a moment ago, they're really good sometimes on evangelism and on giving. By the way, everybody's good on giving, okay? You know, all the churches are good on that one. And uh, giving and all that kind of thing. But you know where the weakness is? The world, <laughs> You know, it used to be, how do I say this? It used to be, you could tell who Christians were. You can't tell anymore. They look just like the world. Now, I'm going to just tell you right now, God didn't want it to be that way. He said, be not conformed to this world. You know what that means? Don't wear the uniform. You know, the word conformed has nothing to do with the inside. It has everything to do with the outside. And what God's saying is, don't look on the outside what you're not on the inside. If you're blood-bought on your way to heaven, saved on the inside, you ought to be reflected on the outside. See, we all know what it is for someone to look something on the outside that's not on the inside. Now, I'm telling you, friends, I can go down, put an Atlanta Braves uniform on, sit in the dugout, there for the Atlanta Braves, and I could dress up like an Atlanta Braves, Braves player, but if they put me in that ball game, everybody in the stands would soon be booing me out of the stadium. You know, because I am not a Major League Baseball player on the inside, even though I'd like to be. I can't hit 60 miles an hour. You with me on this? Doesn't matter how I dress. Doesn't matter what uniform I got on. If it's not on the inside, it doesn't matter what's on the outside. But what's on the inside ought to be reflected by the outside. 
And I just want to encourage you, you see, because I know that in a certain sense we've had what some people might call legalism. I've certainly preached messages on legalism. I'm against legalism like anybody, which is somebody just going through the motions without having faith. I'm, I'm against that. Faith, self-dependence is no good. But I will tell you, so is disobedience. That's no good too. <laughs> So what God is helping us understand here is the importance of your, your, even your theme here, which is it on mission? Is that it? On mission. Why is on mission important? You can talk about faith. You can memorize verses on faith. You can encourage other people to believe. But until you obey, your faith's not going to grow. Now, I would encourage everybody in this room to do something tomorrow. And I'm not going to check up on you, but I would encourage everybody to bring a gospel track with you wherever you go tomorrow. And I want to encourage you to say, God, if there's somebody you want me to talk to, make it clear and I'll do it. Amen. And I want to, I believe in a, in a congregation like this, if we trust the Lord and depend on the Lord and say, Lord, if you've got a divine appointment for today, I'm ready. Tomorrow, I'm ready. You say, preacher, I've never done that. Well, why don't you take a step of faith? Amen. Walk out of there, put a track on your pocket as you walk out. I'm not talking about putting pressure on you. See, I don't want you to do it for me. That's not the point. If you do it for me, it's not going to work. But if you can walk out and say, I believe God's big enough. If he's commanded me to go into the world and preach the gospel, then I'm willing, Lord. I'm available. I got a track. I'm ready to go. You give me the opportunity. You give me the nudge. I'll take this step. And I will tell you something, friends. If you will do this, I will promise you something. What will happen is your faith will result in obedience and your obedience will nurture your faith. Try it. It's not rocket science, but disobedience keeps us in spiritual infancy. It's like this. Walk on the aisle, it doesn't make you spiritual, but if the Holy Spirit of God is telling you to walk the aisle and you don't, then you've got a problem. That's called disobedience. You know what walking the aisle is? Having a funeral. For those of you that were in Sunday school the other day, and we were talking about crucifying the flesh. You know what an invitation is? Gives you an opportunity to crucify the flesh. Have you ever noticed how walking down the aisle just kills you? Have you ever noticed that? That's really good. That's what it's supposed to do. It's like, man, I'm flesh, you're done, man. I, I'm, we're going to have a funeral. I'm going to just put this thing down and crucify the flesh. All I'm simply saying, friends, is faith always, living faith always results in obedience, works, and the works always propel forward your faith. See, that's what God's trying to help us understand. And um, so, but anyway, back to the, 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 the three things that the Bible tells us happen. Look at verse number 22 again. Seest thou how faith wrought with his works? And then again, here's the means, by means of works. So the faith and the works are, are working together. And by works now, okay, in other words, works now by means your faith is made perfect. And then God says, look in verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, what in the world does that mean? As a result of Abraham believing God, and resulting in obedience, willing to sacrifice Isaac, what happened was his faith was perfected, but something else happened. The scripture was fulfilled with Seth. Abraham believed God. It was imputed for him for righteousness. Now I want to ask you a question. When did Abraham get saved? And the answer is Genesis 15, 6. When he believed God, it was imputed to him for righteousness. It's quoting, that's quoting Genesis 15, 6. Do you know when Abraham offered Isaac? That was 30 years later. 
30 years later. So what in the world is the Bible saying? The scripture was fulfilled, which saith Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now don't miss this. Those of you men that were in Sunday school, remember the three circles. The moment you got saved, of course, the old man was crucified. The new man, you were regened. And at that moment, you were created in righteousness and true holiness. But that righteousness, don't miss this, was imputed. Legally, you were righteous in the sight of God, and you always will be. But imputed righteousness is different than imparted righteousness. You say, what do you mean? Legally, you and I have been, been made righteous. That's a legal forensic standing before God. Hallelujah. We are justified, as we heard him saying last night. We're righteous in the sight of God. But what's imparted righteousness? Don't miss this. When you and I believe God enough to obey God, can I say this? He graces us or he enables us, or could we say it this way? Christ's righteousness is fleshed out through our dependent obedience. Could we say it this way? His, the imputed righteousness becomes imparted righteousness. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Friends, Jesus is the righteous one. And when he strengthens you and enables you, you are being literally imparted with his righteousness. I think it was George Whitfield that said that isn't it amazing that when we stand at the judgment seat, we will be rewarded for everything Jesus did through us. And everything we did will be burned up. That is amazing, isn't it? You're going to be rewarded for what Jesus did? But don't miss this. He does it through you. Why? Because you're believing him. And you're making steps of dependent obedience. And in that dependent obedience, he is enabling you. He is literally imparting his righteousness. It's not your righteousness. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. It's his righteousness. is being imparted through you through that dependent obedience. And the Bible says the scripture is fulfilled. <laughs> Abraham believed God it was imputed for righteousness. Now that imputed righteousness is imparted righteousness. And the whole world can see it. And we're rejoicing in it now, thousands of years later. And then the, one third, the final thing the Bible says, and he was called the friend of God. You know what happens when you and I obey God in dependence on him? When our faith results in obedience, and that obedience propels our faith forward, people look at us and say, that person loves God. <laughs> That person's a friend of God. You don't have to. It's like this. When you came into Abraham's office, there wouldn't have been a little name plaque, Abraham, friend of God. No, that wasn't what we're talking about. Everybody knew he was the friend of God. Abraham, that man walks with God. And a lost and dying world was obviously be able to look at Abraham and said, that's a man who's the friend of God. That man is a Christian. That man, in my sight, has been justified by his obedience. The only way a lost and dying world can see that we're different is through dependent obedience that is supernaturally blessed. You know, it's like this, friends. You and I in our lives, when people look at our lives, they ought to look at us and say, you know what? There's no way I can figure out what's going on in that life unless you enter God into the equation. I don't want to live a life that unsaved people can figure out. I think all of us want to live a life where unsaved people say, I can't figure that out. What's going on? God must be on that thing. See, that will never happen without dependent obedience. 
Now, friends, you, can, you and I can start. What happens, what happens when you get in that glory thermal, I call it? You get in that glory thermal, and all of a sudden you pop out of that glory thermal. Get thermal guess what happens? Gravity takes over, and down you go. Sometimes we've got to get back in there and say, you know what? My obedience, my faith has been dying. And the reason I know it is because my obedience has been waning. Way back in the glory thermals, get back in. Okay, I'm going to trust God enough to obey him. In that dependence, your faith begins to grow. You depend on, you obey God. He strengthens your faith. And here you are going back up. But here's the key. God is trying to help us understand faith without works obedience. So let me ask you, what's the glaring disobedience in your life? Is there anything God's saying, you know what, this has been waning. It's been a long time since you've handed out a gospel tract given the gospel. It's been a long time since uh, uh, you um, uh, spent some time, extended time in prayer. Whatever it might be. <laughs> uh, begin to notice some of the worldliness is beginning to make its, may back, make its way back into your life. Yeah, some of those YouTube videos are beginning to compromise your conscience. Beginning to look at other things on social media that, you know, bother you. Think, I shouldn't have seen that. I shouldn't have gone there. Your obedience begins to wane. We realize we're out of that glory thermal and the law of gravity is taking over and we're finding ourselves kind of rolling, kind of soaring down the thing. And God's saying, you need to get back in the glory thermal. And there's always clearly a point of obedience in your life. You know what? Maybe I need to get accountable about my, some of my issues. I may not be looking at so-called pornography, but there's some unwise things I'm looking at, and I need to get with some brother or sister in Christ, and, and I need to get, get back in that glory thermal and, and say, you know, I, 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 I'm, you know, whatever, whatever the issue. I don't know what the issues are. I'm not here to, to promote my uh, son-in-law's app, but he just put $50,000 into an app called The Cord, which is an accountability app for men who want victory in the moral purity arena. And really seen some remarkable things. As men, every single day, every 24 hours, they report on three issues. They report on their thought life. How would you like to report on your thought life every day? You say, you men actually do that? You know why they do it? Because they're sick of having a garbage pit for a brain. And by the way, you say, Preacher, I don't think I'd be willing to report every 24 hours. Then you really don't want victory. You know why those guys report every 24 hours? Because they're sick of having a garbage pit for a brain, and they don't care what it takes. They want victory. Everything's on the table, even humbling themselves every 24 hours. And the amazing thing about those guys, because in talking to them, is they're very honest and transparent about their life. So you know what happens when people get into harboring impurity in their lives, whether it's just mental or it's visual as well? Do you know what happens? As I've said before, they become really good deceivers. They become very good at acting like they're something they're not. And so many of them have found the only way to overcome that deception is to be painfully honest all the time. And they find victory in it. But you know what happens? See, some of you have done this. You've taken, man, you remember a crisis. Man, you were broken before God. You got on the glory thermal and you went up a little bit and got a little bit overconfident. Pop, out you go. My son-in-law said that many men, in the issue of pornography, he said there's three markers where a lot of them fall back. Number one, three weeks. Number two, three months. Number three, three years. 
He's talked to many men, and at one of those markers, they had victory, and he said, many times they get to the point, I'm done, I'm out, I'll never struggle again, and boom, wherefore him that thinketh he standeth, take heed lest he fall. And pop out of the thermal, and down they go. But I got really good news. If you popped out of the thermal, the thermal's still going up. You just got to get back in it. And you get back in it by dependent obedience. That's why those guys every 24 hours are reporting on their thought life. They're reporting on what they're looking at and reporting on another personal issue every single day because they're sick of impurity. And they want victory at all costs. Everything is on the table. And you begin to see remarkable growth in their life. Why? Because they're believing God and it results in obedience. The obedience encourages their faith to believe God, which results in obedience. And there it is again. The glory thermal is moving up and up and up. Now, the Bible, of course, gives us the illustration of Abraham. And Abraham is a great illustration. And it basically gives us the illustration that Abraham believed God. And 30 years later, everybody knew that, man, this is. But you know, that you say, well, that's 30 years. Wow. Well, just so God didn't want you to go out the wrong window, he gave you an illustration of 30 minutes. Her name was Rahab the harlot. And so uh, let's read this just for a moment. And I think you'll find this fascinating. Rahab the harlot here in verse number 25. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works, obviously, when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. Now, what in the world's that talking about? Well, I want to ask you a question. When did Rahab get saved? Well, if we had a moment, and for time's sake, I'll just mention it to you. You know what happened when she got saved? Hebrews chapter 11 tells us. She got saved when she received the messengers. When she received the messengers, you can look back in Hebrews 11, the Bible says that's when she got saved. She was receiving their God as she received them. But notice here in James chapter number 2, it doesn't just say that. Notice what it says. She was justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. Can I say this? Don't miss this. Abraham was justified in the sight of God when he, in Genesis 15, 6, believed God and it was accounted him for righteousness. And Abraham was justified in the sight of men when he offered Isaac on the altar. Okay, Rahab was justified in the sight of God when she received the messengers in peace. But she was justified in the sight of men when she uh, hid them, took care of them, and sent them out another way to protect their lives. Those men had no idea what was going on in her heart unless there had been obedience. How do those men know Rahab was saved? Because she risked her life to protect them. And she said, we're scared to death of you. Now, I believe in your God. And they, they knew she meant business. Why? Because of her obedience. You see, it's like this, friends. We're justified in the sight of God when we come as a sinner and trust Jesus, but you're justified in the sight of men when you begin to live an obedient, dependent life. Then people say, that person's a Christian. Something's different about them. And your faith grows exceedingly. My burden for each one of us here is just identifying our hearts and, hearts and lives. Where is the point of departure? Where did we get out of the glory thermal? Because that's where you need to get back in. I don't want to ask you, friends, is there a time in your life when God dealt with you about worldliness and you've kind of backtracked on some of that? So, time in your life when God dealt with you about the gospel and you, you, you had opportunity, took opportunities God gave you, but you kind of, kind of gotten cold and kind of slipped away, and it's been a long time since you've given and had a gospel encounter. 
Remember the time when you got a hold of the hour of God, began to meet with God, but that's kind of slipped away and your time has diminished or become perfunctory and you're just box checking and God's saying you need to take a step of faith, get back in that glory thermal. I don't know what your issue is, but let me urge you tonight. Would you ask the Lord, Lord, faith without works is dead. Is there any area where my faith, I think I've got faith, but it really isn't faith because it lacks obedience. Could I ask every head bowed, please, and every eye closed?